last month, October, the beginning of October, uh, I, I opened the month with a message all uh, about harvest and harvest time. And the promise God made in Genesis chapter uh, 8, which is that as long as the earth remains, as long as the earth is here, we're always going to have cold and hot. We're always going to have summer and winter. We're always going to have day and night. We're always going to have seed time and harvest. And I mentioned that between each of those, cold and hot, can that can change in a moment. Day and night is hours. Summer and winter can be months. Seed time and harvest, that can be years, all depending on what you plant. A fruit tree might take years and years before that seed gets you a piece of fruit. So waiting for the harvest takes patience. It may take time. Uh, it may be something that we have to experience long suffering. And I presented that message fully intending that the next week would continue on the idea of harvest, etc. But as most of you know, uh, my life along with my family, our entire family, uh, our life was upended, and uh, those, then the Sunday messages took a little different turn, uh, and that's okay. That's all right. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Noah, he brought a message from the prophet Malachi. Malachi asked questions, and Noah boiled it down to, what's the point? And that's really what the essence of some of those questions that were presented in the book of Malachi came to. What's the point of serving God? And through that word, Pastor Noah brought out answers. God hears. He remembers. He treasures us. And he heals eternally. And by the way, he's going to deal with the wicked. Sometimes we see they seem like they're getting everything, but God's going to deal with them. So last week, then, I followed on. I thought, that was, that was excellent. I want to follow on. What's the point? The rest of the story is God out to get you. Do you have to do everything right or else? Or else God's going to get you. And we looked at the close of the book of Malachi and then forward to Jesus, to the close of the New Testament, which ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people, amen. But even with the grace, even with the grace of God, we still have questions. Even for some of us who've walked with Jesus for years and years, there can be times of questions, there can be times of doubt. God, what's happening here? Why is this happening? What's going on? especially when life is upended in just an instant of time. Where's the grace? Where is the grace of the Lord Jesus? We question, we wonder, we doubt. Most of you are probably familiar with the account of Thomas. Thomas, who was called Doubting Thomas. That's who he's come to be called. Even though I think he got the bad rap, all of the followers of Jesus doubted. But Thomas became infamous because 
along with his friends, Thomas's life was upended. All of their lives were upended. The guy that they followed, that they looked up to as master and uh, the Messiah, he was killed. Jesus was executed, falsely accused, hung on a cross, brutal. But the tomb of Jesus was empty. And then Jesus appeared to all of his friends, except Thomas, and Thomas refused to believe. He, that's not happening. I, I'm not, I'm not going to believe this unless I see and touch Jesus. Then Jesus showed up. And I, I share with you one line from John's gospel about this account when Jesus showed up. And Thomas saw him, Thomas touched him. John 20, verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And when you're doubting and when you're questioning, Jesus said, believe without seeing. But faith is not always without sight. Thomas and all of his friends, they had seen Jesus. They had touched Jesus. Now they had something absolutely tangible to hang their faith on. Faith isn't always blind faith. It's good sometimes to say my faith is tangible. When it, when it comes to this idea of believing, to be able to say I've got something solid. Now with, with all of that, I have a question. I have a question for you. Does God love us? Don't answer. Don't answer out loud. You just answer that in your own heart. Does God love us? I believe you have an answer. You know the answer. If your answer is affirmative, how do you know? How do you know that you know? How do you know that you know? Is it blind faith? Or is there something? Is there something tangible, something that you have seen, something that you have touched that gives legitimacy to the answer that you have right now in your own heart? And I want you to think about that. Just consider that as I read through Psalm number 48. Psalm 48 is 14 verses. I want to read the entire psalm to you as you just consider this. Does God love me you have the answer how do you have the answer and i'll read this psalm psalm 48 says great is the lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our god his holy mountain beautiful in its loftiness the joy of the whole earth like the heights of zaphon zaphon was perhaps a uh, it perhaps was a city, it perhaps was a mythical mountain. They don't really have an exact uh, reference for what was Zephon. Uh, it's, it's only mentioned four times, but it, it's thought to be some high, high mountain. Like the heights of Zephon is Mount Zion, God's mountain, higher, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and they were astounded and they fled in terror. 
trembling, seizing them there. Pain like that of a woman in labor. You destroyed them like ships of Tarshish, shattered by an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God, God makes her secure forever. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, you, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. View her citadels that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. Some, England, some, some of the English uh, Bibles conclude that psalm with even to death. God will guide you even to death. As I read Psalm number 48, I asked you to be considering this question, does God love us? Does God love us? Now, you might be wondering, well, where was that? Where is the love in Psalm 48? Didn't really seem like a psalm that was declaring God's love. And I'll grant you that. But in this psalm, in Psalm 48, the love of God, the love of God is on display. It's on display as the triumph of God, the power of God, the victory of God. Psalm 48 is a song of conquest. Some great victory, we don't know what victory, but some great victory motivated the writing of Psalm number 48. It's just not conclusive what victory. Some think it was written after the Syrian army was kept by God from harming King Jehoshaphat of Judah. And, and, and that's 2 Kings, or 2 Chronicles, rather, chapter 18. And there's another account. There's an account of the defeat of King Sennacherib. He was the head of the uh, Assyrian Empire, and his Assyrian army came and laid siege to Jerusalem during the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah. And he was defeated. Sennacherib was. Whatever the victory, whatever the conquest, Psalm 48 is a psalm of triumph. It, it presents the glory of God in his city. In his city, Jerusalem. The city of the Lord Almighty, it's called. The city of the great king. The city of our God. That's repeated. The psalm refers to the strength of the city, its towers, its ramparts, its citadels, all these fortresses that were in the city. But those fortresses, those fortresses, they're not the glory of the city. They are not the true strength of the city. The true strength and the power, that's told to us right at the opening line. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God in his holy mountain. There's the strength. There is the strength of the city. The Lord, 
The Lord is the strength of the city. God is in her citadels. So they are a fortress because he, God Almighty, is their fortress. Any victory, any success, whatever triumph over any enemy, whatever was thwarted when an enemy came, who deserves the credit? It's the Lord. The Lord deserves the credit. And and why? Well, he loves his people. He loves his people. Verse number nine says, within your temple, oh God, we meditate on your unfailing love. So the victorious, the victorious, those who have triumphed, they've been deeply pondering and reflecting on God's love. Their thoughts are focused. Their thoughts are consumed on the love of God who has brought them victory. You and all your fellow citizens, this is what the psalm is saying. You've experienced this major victory. A powerful enemy's been defeated. And you saw God's hand. You saw God's hand in the victory. Without the Lord, without the Lord, you would have lost. You would have been conquered. So after the victory, after whatever that victory was, Psalm number 48, it, it, was, it was written. And I imagine if you were there, if you had experienced some great victory and that psalm was just written and it began to be, be sung, it was its debut, if you will, I imagine you'd be singing with all your heart. We just had this great victory. Consider that Psalm number 48 was motivated by the defeat of King Sennacherib. He was the Assyrian king. And he conquered the cities of Judah. The the psalm mentions the villages of Judah. Well, Sennacherib, he conquered all these villages and cities surrounding the capital of Jerusalem. And then he came to Jerusalem, 185,000 strong. He came with his army. And he came to Jerusalem and he mocked the, the Jewish people. He mocked those who were living in Jerusalem. He taunted them. And then he threatened them. And King Hezekiah, the king of Judah, what did he do? He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and he fell on his face to pray. Now imagine you're there in Jerusalem. Most of the cities of your country have been defeated. And now uh, an enemy, which is occupying all those cities, comes 185,000 strong to your city, the capital, and your king has mounted no defense. Nice, he's ripped his clothes off, put on sackcloth, and he's fallen on his face to pray. Are you confident? Are you confident your city's going to stand? Or are you afraid? Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Second Kings 19, uh, verses 35 and 36. That night, after Hezekiah prayed, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 of the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. 
and a little postscript, he was assassinated by his own sons. Now all those who were in Jerusalem, they saw 185,000 corpses, the corpses of the Assyrian army. And they knew this. There's only one way that happened. God Almighty. That's it. The Lord is the only one who could have accomplished such a thing in a single night. Now you think, just take a minute to, to picture yourself. You're one who saw this. You experienced it. Someone writes this beautiful psalm called number 48, and it's all about the victory. And now they're singing this song. Are you singing along? I bet you'd be singing with all your might. Great is the Lord. Most worthy of praise in the city of our God is Holy Mountain. Of course he'd be singing. I'd be singing. Now let's fast forward. Let's move forward in history a little bit. Let's say we were born in a future generation. The end of that psalm says, you know, tell it to the, the next generation. Well, we're part of a next generation. We're living in 2 Kings Chapter 24 and 25. We're not there in, in chapter 19 where there's this great victory. No, we're there in chapter 24, chapter 25. There's a new king in Nineveh. Sennacherib's dead. There's a new king. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. This king now sends his army to Jerusalem. He puts a siege on the city. But this time his army's not defeated. As a matter of fact, his army closes in, takes you captive, destroys your hometown, destroys Jerusalem, he destroys God's temple, he transports you to a new country hundreds of miles away. Now he tells you what to do, when to do it. You're a slave to that country. You singing Psalm 48? You singing great is God, most worthy of praise? Are you meditating on God's love? What happened to the what happened to the love of God in Psalm 48? Where is God's love? The strong walls of your city are gone. There's no more towers. There's no more ramparts. There's no more citadels. They are rubble. And God's temple's destroyed. There are times of victory. And there are times of defeat. There are times when conquering occurs and it's not hard to project that into our own lives and we're going to experience these times of victory we're also going to experience times that we might label defeat high times and low times mountaintops we sung about and valleys it is the cycle of life in all of those cycles in all of those seasons whatever it is Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. You know, God is not only great when there's some victory to celebrate. God doesn't only love us when we're at the top of the mountain and somehow in the valley his love is gone. God loves us when we're in the valley. He loves us when we're hurting. He loves us when we're suffering. And it's precisely at those points, it's precisely at the points where we are the lowest when we're hurting and we're in pain and we're suffering that we got to bust out a song like Psalm number 48. 
We sung a song at the open today, and it says, God, you have done great things. When we're at our low point, that's a time to say and remind ourselves, yes, God has done great things. Let's look at a lesson that was born out of this account of King Nebuchadnezzar and his conquest of Jerusalem. Think about it. People that have been exiled. And again, just imagine you're one of them. You've been uprooted, taken from your own city, separated from your family. You're a slave now. Three young men were taken away captive. And their accounts are given in the Old Testament. They were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You might better know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar changed their names. They lost their home. Their city was destroyed. They were separated from their family. They were taken captive by a foreign power. They were moved to a new place hundreds of miles away, and they lost their names. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, he commissioned a great gold image to be formed, 75 feet tall, and he gave a command. When you hear the great band and all of its music, you bow down and you worship this image. Now these three young men, and they may have still been in their teens, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow down before that statue of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had created, and the king was furious. He commanded a furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal, and he said, we're going to throw those defiant ones into the fire. And, and, and here's what happened. Let's, let's read about it. It's in uh, the book of Daniel, and it's chapter number 3. Daniel three fifteen to 18. Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music... If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. These are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, whether or not these young men were delivered see that in this whether or not they were delivered to them it did not matter that is a stunning portion of scripture didn't matter to them they were respectful they didn't call the king names your majesty we're not going to bow down to your image our god is able and even if he doesn't we're not, gonna, we're not going to worship that image. See, now the rest of the account, it describes how they were cast into the furnace because they didn't bow down to that golden statue. And then they were saved. They weren't burned. But that's not the lesson. We've already heard the lesson. 
our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, even if he does not, he is able. That was their attitude, that was their faith, and that's how they walked. Even if God does not deliver, he is able. And if he doesn't deliver, will we be faithful? Will we be faithful? He is still faithful. He has not abandoned us. He still loves us when we're at that place, questioning and doubting. I don't know if any of us have faced execution. But when we feel like we're at that kind of point in our life. In front of these three young men was an angry king with the power of life and death in his hands and a blazing furnace. They're facing their own mortality. Did they see the powerful king? Did they see the blazing furnace? Did they, did they take in all the smoke? They saw the love of God. That's what they saw. They saw the love of God. Do you see it? Do you see it? The other day I caught a portion of, uh, of uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Just whatever, channel searching or surfing. And you know, that, that story is a story of a poor Jewish milkman. It's heavy. He's living in Imperial Russia you know, under the thumb of that, uh, that regime. His life, though it was ordered by tradition, his faith, his life was all ordered ordered by his traditions. His role was to provide for his family, keep it safe, find suitable mates for his daughters. His daughters didn't want that. They wanted to choose. They wanted to choose based on love. So this Tevi was conflicted. There was tension between his tradition and this, the idea of love. He pondered love. What's it all about? What is this love? He'd been married 25 years. His marriage was arranged. It seemed to be going well. And he was wondering about love and all of this, and there's this tension. And he went to his wife and he said, do you love me? Do you love me? Now, they had never had this conversation, it seems, and she did not say yes. Instead, she said, Tevi, I've washed your clothes. I've cooked your meals. I've cleaned the house. You know what? When things were hard, I starved with you. What, what is she saying? Through it all, Tevi, I've been loyal to you. I've been with you. I've been by your side. In essence, she's saying, what more do you need? What more do you need, Tevi? Just look around. You are surrounded by evidence of my love. Does God love us? How would the writer of Psalm 48 reply had he lived to being taken captive to Babylon? Just look around. This is the reply. Just look around. You're surrounded by evidence. As we have heard, so we have seen. 
in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God. Walk around the city, go around her, count her towers, consider her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell of them. They might not be around forever. Tell of them. Let the next generation know what God has done. For this God is our God forever and ever. Do you see it? Do you see it? Even when you're hurting, even when you're in pain, even when you're suffering, even when life has brought you down, do you see it? Look around. Look around and consider all he has done. Victories are not the only times to ponder and reflect and meditate on God's love. No, when life gets upended, when life gets upended, get focused. Get focused on and consumed by the love of God. See the triumphs of God that he's already given you. And what victory has God given? Well, God has given you the victory over sin. He saved your soul. Jesus has won over death, hell, and the grave. He's filled you with his Holy Spirit. He's promised you heaven, eternal life, and a resurrected body. And he's done so much more. He's done so much more. He's able. Now, I, I don't know what more I can tell you he's done, but I know that you can look inside your heart right now and you can say, I know things God has done for me. You might be at that place of, I can just praise you today because... I could write Psalm 48 today. I'm, I'm standing on a great, great thing that God has done. Or you might be somewhere else where you need to remind yourself of what God has done for you. You can look back. You can see. You can know. He is able. And our God, our God of Psalm 48, our God of the Old Testament and the New Testament... Our God, from Genesis to Revelation, he loves you. As you have heard, so you have seen. He will guide you to the end, even to the day you pass.